Good evening. Let's generate our motivation. So whenever we hit difficulties, which is often, samsara is one big difficulty, one big problem, then it's good to generate bodhicitta. Because as Shantideva says, it's the elixir that clears away all suffering and brings all happiness. And that benefits each and every living being. So when you really generate bodhicitta, even if it's artificial, contrived bodhicitta, there's a change in your mind and you can't get uh, stuck in self-pity or self-blame because bodhicitta completely focuses on the situation of others and wants to benefit them. And so there's no time or interest to get involved in all of our personal dramas. So that brings a lot of relief, doesn't it? So let's have this motivation for listening to the teachings tonight, for living our life as long as it lasts, and for generating bodhicitta in life after life. So try, when you have problems, when your mind is unsettled, when you're irritated with somebody, or mad at somebody, or judgmental about what somebody's doing, or you feel like the whole world's going to collapse if this certain thing doesn't happen, or if this certain thing doesn't stop. Yeah, so whenever your mind gets revved up like that, it's very helpful to generate bodhicitta and look at the situation we're in, look at the people we're dealing with from the perspective of these are sentient beings whose minds are overwhelmed by afflictions, just like my mind. And it's those afflictions that are making them do what I consider so awful. And so when you remember that, then 
instead of blaming the sentient beings, you know, you see that the real problem is the afflictions, not the sentient beings. And that the sentient beings are being tormented and controlled and made to create negative karma because of the afflictions. And so that helps to have a compassionate attitude towards the sentient beings themselves while you still want to help them overcome whatever afflictions they they have. And when you think like that, then your own mind doesn't get afflicted. Okay, because you're thinking about the welfare of others and how they're trapped. When we get very self-righteous and we get angry and judgmental about what somebody's doing, okay, our self-centeredness is active, activated at that point because we have an idea about how things should be and how somebody should act or how they should not act. And, you know, our ego involvement gets really, you know, involved in that. So it's no longer just some kind of situation. It's like we make it this incredible important thing that, you know, I absolutely, I have to do something about, you know. It's like there's this spot on the rug and it's intolerable, you know. Who put the spot on the rug? After it's the new rug, and I told them to be careful of what they're carrying, and they ignored me because never nobody pays attention to what I say anyway. And they spilled the spaghetti on the new rug, and oh, this is terrible because my mother's coming over, and I wanted to show off the new rug, and now the new rug is dirty, and my mother's going to think I'm a horrible housekeeper. And she's right, but I don't want her to think like that. And so we better do something to clean this rug anyway and get it immaculate. And then I've got to punish the person who spilled the spaghetti sauce on it. Okay, so who spilled the spaghetti sauce? Yeah, because if you raise your hand, you're going to get it. Okay. And you see, our mind just gets, you know, we're out of control with our rage, you know, and it's just a rug and spaghetti sauce, which I know is almost the end of the world, but it isn't the end of the world. So save, you know, your fear of the end of the world for the actual end of the world, you know. Don't waste it before on the second most thing, okay? And and so, you know, you think, oh, the person with the spaghetti sauce, you know, it's just somebody likes spaghetti. I like spaghetti. I can understand that. They were carrying the spaghetti sauce from the kitchen to, you know, eat the, eat the spaghetti in front of the TV. Even though we have a rule in the house that we don't eat spaghetti in front of the TV, but you know, it makes them happy. They didn't want to harm me. They didn't have the intention, you know, to spill the spaghetti sauce on the brand new rug to make me upset. 
Yeah. I mean, who has the intention to spill the spaghetti sauce? You know, very few people have the intention to spill it. It just slips out of your hand or spills off the end of the plate or something happens. Yeah. So, what, you know, why am I getting so upset about something like this? Okay. And then you think, oh, but that person, you know, they just want to be happy. And okay, you know, it's a rule in the house. We don't eat spaghetti in front of the TV. You can eat nachos in front of the TV, but you can't eat spaghetti. I don't know why we have that rule, but anyway, you shouldn't break it. So, you know, this is just life. And, and, you know, and this person just wants to be happy. They don't have harmful attitudes. Okay. And maybe they tripped over the cord in the middle of the rug. And who left the cord in the middle of the rug? Yeah, it was me. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I have something to do with them tripping and spilling the spaghetti sauce. You know, so in that way your mind kind of relaxes. Yeah. And you you get used to, you know, being able to to um, differentiate between really serious catastrophes and, uh, you know, small catastrophes, you know, like little, like spaghetti sauce. Okay. And then you don't waste your energy getting upset about the little things. Yeah. You save all your energy for when they don't spill the spaghetti sauce, but they throw the rug out <laughs> because they don't like it, even though they know you like it. You know? So, okay, you're getting what I'm saying, you know? So it, bodhicitta really helps us to shift the attention in our mind to other sentient beings. And in that way, it protects us from negativity. Okay. And then maybe, because we've generated bodhicitta, we'll help clean up the spaghetti sauce on the rug, even though we weren't the one who spilled it. Never! I will never clean up somebody else's mess. They need to learn to clean up their own mess. Because if they don't learn, then they're going to go through life making messes and expecting other people like me to clean it up. So I've got to stop this behavior on their part now. Yeah, right, Sergeant Joyous Effort? Immediately you have to stop that behavior. Because otherwise it's going to be a habit. And they're going to dribble spaghetti sauce <laughs> yeah. all the way up to the pure land. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, it, you know, it just kind of helps us quiet our mind down a bit yeah, and help. And then maybe we can even learn to laugh at the situation. Yeah. Okay. So we are on page 295 
another section that says intention karma, intended karma, and mental karma. Okay? So karma is of two types. Actually, there's many ways to divide karma. We've been covering a lot of them in this chapter and previous chapters. So this is one way where karma is of two types. First one is intention karma, and the second is intended karma. So Vasubandhu explains in Abhidharma Kosha, the treasury of knowledge. He says, karma gives rise to the diversity of the world. It is of two kinds, intention karma and what it produces, or intended karma. Intention is mental karma. The intended karma it produces is physical and verbal karma. These physical and verbal karmas consist of perceptible and imperceptible karma. Okay, so that karma definitely gives rise to the diversity in the world because sentient beings have different karmas then they get born in different bodies they have different experiences they live in different environments and so on so there's two kinds so intention karma and intended karma intention karma is the mental factor of intention in the mind okay it produces intended karma, which is the verbal or physical action that you did. Okay? So intention is mental karma. And then the verbal and physical actions are intended karma. And you can see here, you know, intention, okay, that goes with the, with the mental factor of intention. Intended karma is what that intention intended to do, you know, okay? Now, within intended karma, there's two divisions, perceptible and imperceptible, okay? So those of you who have been for your full ordination, you'll remember the term, the precept body, which is an imperceptible karma, okay? We'll get into that in a few pages. Okay, so intention karma is mental karma. It's the mental action. Specifically, the mental factor of intention, which is in which of the, of the four mental aggregates? Where's the mental factor of intention? Miscellaneous. Mm, miscellaneous, yeah. The, the aggregate of miscellaneous factors, okay? And it's one of the five omnipresent. So it occurs with, you know, every kind of mind, okay? So once a strong intention has arisen in the mind, physical and verbal actions, intended karma, follow. So the intention has to be strong enough to make the mouth move and, or make the body move. Okay. The body and the, ma and, the, and the speech don't move unless there's an intention in the mind 
first. Okay? Even though it seems like sometimes you're saying things and you think, you know, just shut up, I shouldn't be saying this, like somebody else is talking, but there's an intention there somewhere, you know, that's strong enough to make that happen. Physical and verbal actions may be either perceptible karma that reveals the person's intention or imperceptible karma that does not. Okay, so when it talks about perceptible or non-perceptible, it's if you are the the karma, the speech in the body is uh, going to give you an idea of uh, what's the person in it, the person's intention was. Okay, so is the intention uh, is the intention quote quote perceptible through the physical and verbal action? Okay, so example, if I go, walk in a room and I'm going. Does that tell you about something something about how I might be feeling or what I might be thinking versus if I walk in the room and I go, yeah, okay, <laughs> you're not sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, you know, our body and speech can give us ideas about what's going on in somebody's mind, what they're intending. Oh, this this is coming up in the uh, impeachment thing because one of the yeah here I go again um, <laughs> but it's in it's interesting but it's a very good example because some people are saying well after you know they broke into the Capitol and they're running you know the rioters and they're running around and everything like that. Um, how, you know, how do you know what was going on in, in Trump's mind? You know, because he did say, uh, now it's time to go home and be peaceful and you're special people and, you know. So that sounds very nice, doesn't it, to, to say? How do you know what, what's going on in his mind? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you look at other words he said in, in that same tweet, you know, where he again repeated the, the big lie uh, that the election was stolen, that it was a corrupt election when it wasn't. Yeah, so you look at that, and that can give you an idea through what he uh, tweeted of what was going on in his mind, what his intention was. Yeah, because at that point he, you know, he he knew, for example, that uh, the vice president was in danger. He didn't ask, you know, is Pence safe? Uh, he didn't say, what can I do to stop uh, the rioting? Anything like that? Yeah, actually, what what he did in the middle of the rioting was he called one of the senators and asked him to please delay the process, the certification process some more. And the senator uh, said, I can't talk to you now. Uh, Vice President Pence has just been evacuated and I've got to go. 
So, you know, his words, they tell you what was going on in his mind. Okay, so it's perceptible karma give, indicating the intention, you know, and what he, what was most important in his mind at that time. And, you know, and it was slowing down the, what the Senate was doing in uh, telling, you know, all the, all the electoral votes and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so it's a very good example. You know, that's how, how you see you can read somebody's intention by their words, by their actions. For example, when strong malice is present in our mind, the mental factor of intention that accompanies it is mental karma. Okay, so we have to be very clear here. The mental factor of intention is one mental factor. The mental factor of malice is another mental factor. The mental factor of malice is non-virtuous. It's the one that makes the intention non-virtuous. Okay, so the intention doesn't do that by itself. It becomes virtuous or non-virtuous depending on the other mental factors that it shares the same primary mind with. Because remember, when you have a primary mind, just the basic consciousness, you know, visual, visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and mental consciousness, that's just the primary consciousness. And then you have different mental factors that perform different functions that shape that primary consciousness into what it's going to become. So in the case of uh, a mental karma, yeah, it's the, the primary mental consciousness. Yeah, there's the mental factor of intention. And then, you know, if you have the mental factor of malice or love or, um, you know, stinginess or generosity, then all of these are going to make that whole mental state either virtuous or non-virtuous. And because that mental factor is, of intention is one of the five omnipresent ones, it's definitely going to be together with that mental, uh, the primary mental consciousness, then it also becomes non-virtuous or virtuous. Okay, and so that is the mental karma. Okay, so that intention to harm another person leads us to speak spitefully to him. Our voice uttering the snide comment is perceptible verbal karma. Okay, you know snide comments? comments? Anybody here ever make snide comments? Yeah, you want to give us an example of a snide comment? Anyone want to give an example of one of her snide comments? <laughs> okay, so that, you know, that mental intention brings forth the verbal action, okay? Which is perceptible verbal karma. The harsh tone of our voice 
reveals our intention to hurt the other person. So it could be the harsh tone of the voice, it could be the volume of the voice, it could be the words themselves. There's lots of different ways in which our speech can uh, be a window into what our intention is. Okay. So then uh, Asanga says, what is mental karma? It is a mental action that con- conditions the mind. It consists of meritorious, demeritorious, and immutable actions. Okay, so meritorious, virtuous actions uh, in the desire realm. Demeritorious, non-virtuous actions in the desire realm. Immutable actions are actions that give rise to birth in the former formless realm. And those are those states of mental absorption that you have actualized as a human being. Okay, so you're meditating as a human being, you're, uh, you attain serenity, and then you keep going, getting deeper and deeper concentration until, let's say, the third uh, dhyana, then that, uh, your meditation on the third dhyana is, becomes the immutable karma that will throw you into a rebirth in the third dhyana of the form realm after you die. Yeah, in the, unless your concentration decays, okay? So that immutable karma is, is always virtuous, and it comes from concentra- concentration, okay? So mental karma uh, is the mental factor of intention which accompanies a primary mind and is included in the fourth aggregate of miscellaneous factors. When the mental factor of intention accompanies a primary mental consciousness that is also accompanied by a virtuous mental factor, such as faith or love, it becomes constructive karma. Okay, constructive mental karma. That intention is mental karma and intention karma. Okay. Similarly, the intention that accompanies a primary mental consciousness that is also accompanied by a non-virtuous mental factor such as attachment, resentment, or discouragement, which is a form of laziness, yeah, then that mental factor that's in that same primary mental consciousness with one of attachment, resentment, or discouragement, that mental factor of intention becomes uh, destructive or non-virtuous karma. Okay, so the intention is mental karma and intention karma, and the non-virtuous mental factor is an affliction. Okay, so within that same primary mind, you have an intention, you have an infliction, affliction, you have all, many other mental factors too. Okay. So intentions, or intention karma, pr- 
produce intended karmas, which are physical and verbal actions, motivated by the intention that shares the same primary mental consciousness as attachment, someone engages in the verbal intended karma of lying in order to get what he wants. Okay? Or taking what hasn't been freely given to get what he wants or whatever. Okay? Motivated by the intention that shares the same primary mental consciousness as vengeance, someone may kill another person who speaks divisively about her to ruin her her reputation. Okay? So somebody speaks divisive words about me to somebody else in order to ruin my reputation. I have the intention of revenge, okay, vengeance. That's the non-virtuous mental factor. In that same uh, mental consciousness, primary mental consciousness, is also accompanied by a mental factor of intention. And so the whole thing becomes negative because of the affliction of vengeance in the mind. Okay. The virtue, virtuous and non-virtuous mental factors don't uh, accompany the, the five um, physical senses. Okay. So when you, it may seem like it does, because you look at something and I want it. Less if your visual consciousness itself has the attachment. It doesn't. Your visual consciousness is just apprehending the raw data of the object. Okay? That data gets transmitted to the mental consciousness, which says, Ooh, goody chocolate, I want some. Okay? And that's the mental consciousness that creates the non-virtue because of attachment. And then it motivates the hand to reach out and grab the chocolate. Okay? So a strong mental intention that instigates lying and a strong mental intention that abandons lying are both the mental factor of intention and intention karma. The former is accompanied by a non-virtuous mental factor, such as anger, the latter by a virtuous one, such as integrity. Okay. So this is often what we're trying to do when we practice the Dharma, especially the thought training practices, is we have a non-virtuous mental factor arising in our mind, making that whole mental state non-virtuous, including the intention. And then we try and see the situation from a different perspective so that a virtuous mental factor arises in that mental consciousness. And then the uh, mental factor of intention in that, that mental state becomes virtuous, and it will lead to a virtuous action, okay? So, I mean, often what we're trying to do is just kind of uh, get rid of one mental factor and, and nourish another one. 
When Thich Nhat Hans uh, talks about watering seeds in yourself or watering seeds in other people, what he's talking about is doing things that will make a virtuous mental factor arise in somebody's mind. Okay. So when either intention is accompanied by the other branches that form a complete karmic path, Okay, so the object, the attitude, the action itself, the completion. Then it becomes the second link of dependent origination and has the power to propel a rebirth in cyclic existence. The physical or verbal actions that are brought about by these mental karmas are intended actions. Okay? With me so far. So now the next section is physical and verbal karma, and within those, perceptible and imperceptible forms. Another translation for perceptible and imperceptible was revelatory and non revelatory. Okay, so revelatory in that it reveals somebody's intention or non-revelatory in that it doesn't. But I think perceptible and imperceptible is a better translation. So all Buddhist schools agree that karma is connected to our intentions. So tantrikas, chitamadrans, and svatantrikas say that all karma of body and speech and mind is the mental factor of intention. Okay, so all the karma of the three doors is the mental factor of intention. Okay, the mental factor of intention that motivates an action is intention karma, and the mental factor of intention at the time of doing the physical or verbal karma is intended karma. Okay, so if you go out and, you know, smash that spider, there's an intent, intention karma in your mind first, you know, that's together with uh, the, you know, a non-virtuous mind of, you know, anger or, or attachment, you know, I'm attached to my body and I'm afraid that spider is going to bite me, and so... I have the intention to get rid of it and smash it or whatever, okay? And then you go and you smash it. That's the physical action. That's the intended action, okay? And the mental factor of intention at the time you smash the spider is intended karma, okay? So for these three schools, the Sao Tantrikas, Yogacharyans and and Spatantrikas, okay. All these karmas are um, are the mental factor of intention. When your primate, your first motivation in your mind, okay, is is the intention karma. The karma when you're doing the physical or verbal action is the intended karma, but that's also mental, okay. It's, it's in, it's, uh, yeah, it's in the mind, okay? So for them, both the intention karma or the mental karma 
And the intended karma, the physical and verbal actions, are intentions. So for them, when you talk about physical and verbal actions, they're thinking about the mental factor in the mind when the body and speech is doing, actually doing that action. Okay? Now the Vibhasikas, they have another idea. So they say that karma can be of two kinds. Intention karma, okay, which is the mental factor of intention. So far, same as the others. And intended karma, which is karma of body and speech. Okay, so far so good. The karmas of body and speech are of two types. Perceptible forms and imperceptible forms. So here's where the difference comes with the, with the other schools. You know, with the, the, those three schools, yeah, the karmas of body and speech were the intention accompanied the physical action. Here, for the Vibhasakas, it's the uh, imperceptible form, or it, it, um, it could be perceptible or imperceptible form. So it's a form, it's not a, an, uh, a mental factor. Okay, so perceptible physical karma, what, what uh, Vasubandhu says, is the shape of the body when it is motivated by an intention and is moving. For example, when prostrating or killing. Okay, so the shape of the body, the position that the body is in, that is perceptible physical karma when you're doing the action. When you're doing the action of prostrating, hopefully the, the intention that you're able to perceive through that is, is faith, or it could be regret for negative actions, okay? And through killing, the, you know, the intention that, that you're seeing is anger, or hatred, or whatever, disgust. Okay, so that's and perceptible verbal karma is the sound of the voice. For example, when lying or speaking kindly. Okay, so when you're speaking, the sound of the voice, because remember, sound is in the form aggregate. Okay, so the sound of the voice is the is the karm is the perceptible karma because you can tell from the sound you can get an idea of what somebody's uh, intention is. Okay, so the shape of the body and the sound of our voice are forms, and they are perceptible forms in that they enable others to understand our motivation for doing the action. Okay. So, you know, you see somebody prostrating. Do you think if you look closely at how they're prostrating, you could see if they're prostrating uh, with a mental, with an attitude of faith, or if 
they're distracted. You don't think when, when they're prostrating, you, you can tell what their motivation is? Some people think, you know, if you want, you know, if somebody is really prostrating from their heart and with feeling, do you think they move their body differently than if they're, you know, thinking about going to the beach after they finish 100,000? Do you think their body moves differently? Yeah, if you look closely at what's going on. Okay, so maybe something we could start to check up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you see somebody meditating, do you think you can tell when they're distractive and when they're focused? Maybe sometimes you can tell. <laughs> or they're like this and then, then their eyes you know their brow furl goes like this yeah and when they talk about body language yeah I mean you can learn so much if you're sensitive to body language okay um, okay, and perceptible forms may be virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral. You know, you're sweeping the floor. Yeah. So unless you're sitting there going, why am I on the road to sweep the floor today? I can't stand this. Maybe you're just sweeping the floor with no specific intention. So that's a neutral perceptible form, okay? Or if you're practicing thought training, it might even be a virtuous perceptible form. Imperceptible forms are subtle forms that are not perceivable by the sense faculties and that arise only when a person has a strong intention. So they are either virtuous or non-virtuous because neutral actions lack the powerful intention necessary to bring forth an imperceptible form. Okay? If you have a neutral attitude, you know, it's, it doesn't have the energy. You, you, you can't, yeah. Okay. Imperceptible forms continue to exist no matter if the person is conscious sleeping, or engaged in other actions. An example is monastic precepts, or the five lay precepts, or the eight Anagarika precepts. So that level of precepts, you know, those are all different types um, of Pratimoksha precepts. There's how many different types of Pratimoksha precepts? Eight, okay. What are they? Familiar ordained bhikshus and bhikshunis. Okay, novices, male and female, shamanaris, shamanaras, shikshamanas, upasaka and upasika, the lay people, and the one day precepts. Okay. 
So those eight are at the level of pratimoksha uh, precepts, and those are uh, imperceptible forms. When you're taking them, when you're kneeling, you know, to take them, that's a perceptible form. Because people can look and see, oh, they're taking precepts because they're kneeling. But then after that, you get up and you're moving around, you still have the precepts. It's a subtle form that is with you, but, you know, nobody can tell that you have them. You can't, you can't see that. Mm -hmm. What about the bodhisattva restraints? Those are mental. Those are mental karmas, yeah. And the the prati moksha precepts are taken until we die. At that time, the precept body is lost. The bodhisattva and tantric precepts we take until awakening. Yeah. So there, there's not a um, a precept body that that goes out of existence when you die. Yeah. Okay. I've uh, this whole thing of imperceptible forms and the precepts. I've asked so many questions to so many lamas about them, and um, and it, they're they're definitely an extremely hidden phenomena. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, some lamas say that that what they are is they're. They're very a subtle form of the elements. And, you know, because you ask, well, what exactly is this? It's a form. What exactly is it? You know, and you get a variety of <laughs> attempts at an answer, <laughs> in, my, in my humble opinion, you know. Maybe they really understand it, but... So, um, imperceptible forms, okay, there's subtle forms that are not perceivable by the sense faculties and that arise only when a person has a strong intention. They are either virtuous or non-virtuous because neutral actions lack the powerful intention necessary to bring forth an imperceptible form. Okay, so that's why when you go to take your bhikshu or bhikshuni vows, you know, you, they always tell you to concentrate. You know, at that time when you're going in there and they're doing the Sangha Karman, you have to concentrate and do the visualization. You know, and that way you generate the precept body in yourself. If you don't have that strong intention, yeah, it's going to be difficult to generate the precept body. There's different, there's different ways to visualize when you take the, uh, the Pratimoksha vows. Yeah. Uh, I teach the way that I learned in the Tibetan tradition. The Chinese tradition way of doing it is uh, another one of those extremely <laughs> hidden phenomena. <laughs> Don't you, what do you think? Yeah, kind of. We've been, we've been trying to we write down all the descriptions of it. It's still kind of hard to describe. Okay. And so that imperceptible form is with you all the time. So that's why 
they say that when you have, uh, the, you know, any of the pratimoksha precepts, as long as you are not breaking them, you know, and you haven't given them back, you are all the time accumulating merit because that precept body is there all the time. Okay? Even you're sleeping, even you're distracted, whatever. You know, you're still keeping the precepts. And you notice when we do our posada, one of the things uh, that we say is when we're confessing, may the virtuous one affirm that my... um, that, that my that, that I am pure, that my precept body is complete, and that I can perform the posada with purity. So your precept body is complete. In other words, if you broke any of the proscribed um, proscribed uh, actions, you know, precepts. Remember, we talked about that. Yeah. So if you've broken any of those, then that, that part of having broken the prescribed part, you've confessed, and so your precept body is restored. And when your precept body is restored, then you can perform the posada. If you don't confess properly, then the precept body isn't restored, and then problems. Yeah. Just a point of clarification. When we confess, we're purifying those downfalls. Yeah. And is it the confession that restores or the recitation of the pratimoksha vows that restores the precept? I think it's the whole thing. Okay. Yeah, that you can confess and then you are there for the posada. You know, for for the shramanarikas, they aren't there for the recitation of the whole thing, but they still uh, restore their precept body. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So the precept body is a form phenomena. The precept body is a form phenomena. Yeah. But when we're dreaming, the form aspect of ourselves is laying on a bed. Right. Whereas the activities that are in the dream are not form. So does the the person who's dream the character in the dream not have precepts, but the person who's laying on the bed does? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a dream person doesn't have precepts. Because a dream person isn't a living being. Okay, a dream the the dream you know unless you're you're a high yogi and generating a precept body, but the um, not a precept body a uh, yeah a dream body. Okay, uh, yeah. This is the basic explanation why we can't break our vows in a dream. Um. What determines whether you break your precept or not is what you think when you wake up. Okay? So if you dream that you're killing somebody, you haven't lost your ordination because you had that dream. If when you wake up, you go, oh, that was a good, good dream. I got rid of that guy. You know, even though it was just a dream, I'm really glad I dreamed I'd kill him. Then you create a lot of negative karma. If you wake up and you say, oh, I really have a lot of regret. I don't want to even think like that towards another living being, even in a dream. Then there's no negative karma. And actually, you're reinforcing your intention not to kill by thinking about that. 
is the negative karma that you um, make upon rejoicing in the morning, you know, is that about rejoicing in someone else's activity or is that about um, break, if you were a monastic break, a parajika offense? I don't understand. So, it, so it's, it's your dream. Right. But you said it's not, it's not me in the dream. It's a fictional character, you said. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, is the dream body you? No. So no. am I just rejoicing in someone else? No, you're just rejoicing in, you know, this, this, what this dream body did, what your mind concocted, okay? What your mind concocted. It's, it's like if you sit and daydream, you know, you, you can sit and daydream of killing somebody, yeah, and afterwards, if you go, oh, that was a really good trade dream, <laughs> you know, and then that's going to turn into actually a mental karma, and you might go, go out and kill the, the person. But if uh, when the meditation bell rings and you realize you've been thinking of killing somebody the whole meditation, and you go, oh, that's not so good. I really regret that. Okay, so then you don't. It's, it's your mental processes, okay? But what's interesting is the things in the dream, well, it's, it's coming, it, they're, another they're another category of what we call the phenomena source. So the phenomena source are uh, forms that are only perceptible by the mental uh, consciousness. So the uh, the precept body is one of those, and so is the dream body. Okay, We're, we'll get to it. I'll explain it a little bit more later. Okay. Yeah, but it, it's not when you dream that all of a sudden there's two yous. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this is why, it, yeah, because the precept body is always there, that's why it's really helpful to take the precepts rather than just not take the precepts but abandon the action. I mean, it's always good to abandon non-virtue, but you don't create the same karma as if you took the precept and you're not doing the action. Okay, so this, this is, you know, a good reason for taking precepts when you have the intention to abandon non-virtuous actions. So imperceptible forms are obscure phenomena, I second that one, established by reliable cognizers depending on authoritative scripture. Okay, so they're not things that you can see through direct perceptions, and they're not things that you can uh, have an inference by power of the fact. It has to be, it's an authoritative uh, inference. And authoritative inferences, I don't think they're watertight. Jeffrey discussed, discussed them a few weeks ago. They're, they're not watertight. They're doing the best you can with the information you have, but uh, it's, it's not 100%, in my opinion, okay? 
And Jeffrey's my friend because he agrees with me. <laughs> what? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes from the friend and enemy thing, depending upon whether he agrees with me or not. No, whether he answers my questions or not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chim Jampel Yang. In Ornament of Abhidharma, he's a Tibetan who wrote, you know, kind of uh, this huge Abhidharma text in Tibetan that has been translated into English. So um, we could even get it for our library. Yeah, an old friend of mine translated it. It's like this big, and it's like this complicated language. Abhidharma is... is, is Abhidharma is Abhidharma. <laughs> and some of it is fascinating, and some of it, the terminology is, is qu quite difficult, I think. Okay, so Chim Jampayang, in Ornament of Abhidharma, quotes a sutra that establishes their ex existence. In other words, the existence of imperceptible forms. So here's the quote. All forms are subsumed in three types of forms. One, forms that are visible and obstructive. Two, forms that are invisible but obstructive. And three, forms that are invisible and non-obstructive. Okay, so there's only three P with putting these, these terms together. An example of visible and obstructive form is a table. It's visible, can be perceived by the eye consciousness, and it obstructs the space it occupies so that no other things can occupy, occupy that space at the same time. Okay, so this is visible and obstructive. This is visible and obstructive, okay. The sound of people laughing is obstructive because it prevents our hearing someone else who is whispering. Oh, did I, what did I? Oh, yeah. Okay. Examples, but uh, but invis uh, examples of invisible but obstructive forms are sounds, tastes, and odors. They cannot be seen by the eye but they are obstructive. For example, the sound of people laughing is obstructive because it prevents our hearing someone who is whispering. Yeah. The, uh, the smell of what? Yeah. Huh? Litter boxes. Litter boxes. <laughs> yeah. Is invisible and obstructive because it, it, obstructs you from smelling the perfume. Yeah. Which you don't want to smell anyway either. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you put the perfume in the kitty box, then it smells even worse. <laughs> okay. An example of invisible and not obstructive forms are imperceptible forms. So they're invisible, you can't see them with your eyes, and they're non-obstructive because they don't obstruct you from seeing or doing anything else or putting anything in a 
in the space. Okay? Vibhasaka has asserted that only imperceptible forms are examples of the third type of forms, whereas prasangikas include other phenomena such as dream objects. Let's see what the footnote says. Mm. Only vibhasakas and prasangikas accept imperceptible forms, but the way they assert them differs. Vibhasakas say they are Vibhasakas say they are substantially established, whereas the prasangikas do not. The other tenant systems do not accept imperceptible forms. So they say that your precepts are just the mental factor of intention. Okay. So, yeah, what? But even the language of our posada that says the precept body, mm-hmm. does that mean that that's just a mental thing because the Chinese are Chittimatran, we think? It's, it is, uh, no, it must be some influence from, I mean, so many people use the Vibhasaka. I mean, the Vibhasaka influences all the other schools. Yeah, and sometimes the other schools will refute something the Vibhasaka says, and other times they they just accept it. There's no refuta- refutation. So in this case, many of the Prasangikas accept it, that, but they interpret it in a somewhat different way. Okay, but also because uh, your precepts are are, you know, they're common throughout all the Vibhasaka, the eighteen schools. So you're going to use probably the you know their idea of it being an imperceptible form, and you get a precept body. Okay. Remember that the that at least uh, in Tibetan, the word for form and body is the same word. Okay. So sometimes it means body, sometimes it means form, which is including all the other things. Venerable, I think too, like in the Chinese, at our full ordination, they will explain that the precept body is a seed in the eighth consciousness. But I think that is a function of the mm. contemporary Chinese Buddhist philosophy, right? Because the original Dharmaguptaka Vinaya would have been in Sanskrit. So I don't know what word was used for precept body, but the Chinese term for precept body too can be translated as essence of the precepts. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's always debatable. I'm never sure which to use, but I just adopt precept body. Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, because I would assume that the Dharma Guptaka itself would probably say it's an imperceptible form. But the Chinese Buddhism is very strongly influenced by Yogacara. And so say, saying that it is a precept body, that it's a seed in the in the in the foundation consciousness that accords with their philosophy, as we see His Holiness gives some of his opinion, uh, and you'll see that how he interprets it is more according to the Prasangika view of things. Okay, because the Vasakas say it's substantially uh, established, and of course the Prasangikas would never say that. So what you often have is, uh, you know, 
well, you look even in the in the ordination ceremony, you have the original uh, Sangha Karman that was there from you know the time of the Buddha, <laughs> and then they add all these these other prayers and visualizations and activities to form the whole ordination ceremony, and those uh, are according to the the different. Um, the tradition that is practiced in that country. And so the ceremonies turned out to be a little bit different, but the Sangha Karmans are always there and they're always the same. The same with the Posada, okay? The Tibetan Posada, they make Torma offerings, they recite the Heart Sutra, you know, there's all sorts of other stuff put, put in it that you don't find in the Dharma Guptaka. So this is very common, you know, when you, when there's rituals and ceremonies, you, you take, you know, maybe something that's from the scriptures, that, that's the bare, um, the bare bones of it. And then according to your tenant system, according to the, the culture that you're in, and, and people write other prayers, they do other things, and you get the whole big thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's that's quite natural, you know. I mean, that's how Buddhism spreads from one one place to the next. And you'll see when Venerable Hengqing uh, teaches us in in March, because she is like so keen that we uh, do a bhikshuni ordination. Yeah. I mean, more than keen over the moon with enthusiasm for us, you know, doing the bhikshuni ordination. And so we're going to be talking about, you know, what are the essential things to keep in the ordination and what can we change, okay? So, uh, you know, in the, the Chinese ordination, they have a, um, a one, two, or three-month period, yeah? We'll probably start out with one month or a little bit more than one month. But the first thing you do is you learn how to eat properly when you go. Yeah, and that's why I couldn't go down for the medicine meal with everybody else the night I arrived because I didn't know how. When you have your three bowls here and your three bowls there and you mix this one here and that one there and put this with your your chopsticks, and I didn't know how to do that, you know. And that's Chinese culture, yeah. But we're not going to teach that when we do the ordination ceremony. We'll teach people, you know, you have a spoon, you have a fork, you can have chopsticks. Here's how to properly hold chopsticks, because many people in the West eat with chopsticks, but they don't hold them in a way that facilitates eating with them. <laughs> Have a spirit. <laughs> yeah, right. Or like it's like, you know, this, and you know, you just got that big thing and then it falls out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, because when I first went to, to you know, for Bikshuni or Nature, I didn't know how to eat properly with, with chopsticks. And uh, neither did the other American nun. And so, yeah, that leads into a whole other story, which I've told you before. Um, but it's a good story. Maybe should I tell it again? 
Um, okay, we'll go on. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, each, uh, each, everybody, you know, you keep the essence and then you add stuff. I mean, look, the robes are different. Yeah. And look at how the Tibetan robes are and how we've changed some of the Tibetan robes. We've changed, we've actually stitched in the pleats, you know, and stitched in, we've changed the donkas a bit. So that's all, you know, very, very common. It's, yeah. <laughs> okay. So the treasury of knowledge. Oh, I was talking about these, um, these other phenomena that are part of the phenomena source. Okay, so dreams, um, precept bodies. Uh, when, you know, you've heard about the meditation where uh, yogis will develop uh, serenity or single-pointedness on the universe full of, full of bones, we uh, talked about that that meditation in volume. It's in volume three, four. Yeah, and it's a it's a great meditation. It's so good for your mind, boy. You know, you want to settle your mind down. Do the bone meditation. So um, <laughs> then. Uh, you know, so they develop their concentration so strong that they actually create um, a mental body, an imperceptible mind, uh, an imperceptible form that is the object that their mental consciousness perceives when they uh, are meditating on the universe full of bones. Yeah. I've often wondered if you're meditating on the, you know, the figure of the Buddha, if at the beginning, you know, that is, is similar, is some kind of imperceptible form. And then when you actually, you know, gain realizations, then it's an actual Buddha. Yeah, but maybe at the beginning, it's some kind of imperceptible form. Okay. The treasury of knowledge speaks of three types of imperceptible forms, ethical restraints, anti-restraints, and other imperceptible forms. Maybe before getting into this, um, are there any questions? Yeah. So the first question would be, how can we enjoy treats without attachment incurring negative karma? How can we enjoy treats? Treats. Treats. Okay. Without attachment. Tweets or treats? Treats. Treats. T-R. T-R. Okay. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Who enjoys tweets? I don't know. <laughs> Someone does. <laughs> yeah, we know one person who does. Um, without attachment. Yeah. You, you... Enjoy the tree with an awareness that there's no happiness in that object itself. That the happiness arises, you know, from the combination of the object, your sense uh, faculty, and your consciousness. Okay, it's not like happiness is there and it like 
comes across the ether into you. But it's, it's something that arises as a dependent process. And you think that, you know, that pleasant feeling is impermanent. So since it's impermanent, enjoy it when it's here. And when it's not here, don't daydream about it. Cling, don't cling to it. Don't try and recreate it. Let it come and let it go. You ready for the next one? Yeah. Okay. What if a person's intentions is not apparent? For example, a person befriends another with the intention of stealing something. Is the deceptive behavior intended karma? The, the, the deceptive behavior is intended karma. Yeah. Their uh, mental attitude, you know, wanting to deceive is the intention karma. Did I answer that the question okay? Sounds yeah. good. You ready for the next one? Yep. Okay. Since the bodhisattva and tantric precepts continue until fully awakened, does that mean that those who have taken them are creating negative karma in future lives, even though they're not consciously aware that they have them? Yeah, this question comes all the time. I even asked it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it seems like... You know, because you you don't remember having taken it, you have it, but it's you you kind of have to retake it in that life for it to become really fully functioning again. And so what happens is the seed from having it taken it in the previous life um, facilitates your encountering the bodhisattva path and being able to take the bodhisattva vow again in this life. Do you create negative karma even when you're a baby and you don't know that you took the bodhisattva vows in the previous life? That's a question for the Buddha who understands karma far better than me, who understands all the subtle aspects of it. Ready? Mm -hmm. Where do empowerments fit? Are they form bodies? No, empowerments aren't form bodies. Empowerments are uh, a ceremony where a lama leads you through a meditation. Ready? Yeah. Can a precept be broken mentally and imperceptibly because there is no action but creates ne the negative karma? For example, daydreaming on drinking alcohol and enjoying the dream. Okay. Like I explained before with, with his thing, um, you, if you dream, you know, that you got really splattered, uh, you know, raving drunk, and, and you, you took that, um, you know, what's that guy's name, that old quarterback that, that just won the Super Bowl? Tom Brady? And, yes, him. And he took one of the trophies or something, and he threw it out of the he, boat he, he was he in. He threw it to Gronk. Yeah, he threw it to another guy. He, th he, threw it he just threw receiver. it out of his boat into somebody else's boat, you know, because he was really drunk. Tom Brady was drunk? Yeah, Tom Brady was drunk. Right. Yeah, I don't know what his coach said about that. Okay. But that's what the newspaper said. 
Mm-hmm. Got, got, got it. Yeah. Okay. So where were we? <laughs> so Tom Brady, instead of the football, he threw the trophy. Yeah. <laughs> well, everybody's going, ah, how could you do that? Um, yeah, so will you read the question again? <laughs> this is when they did the Q&A this afternoon with the, in the impeachment thing. Trump's um, uh, attorneys very often ask them to repeat the question. Yeah. So will you repeat the question, please? They were very polite. They repeated them. It. Anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can a precept be broken mentally and imperceptibly okay. because there is no action but it creates the negative karma? Yeah. So that's the same answer that I gave for him. Depends how you react to your daydream afterwards. If you rejoice in doing that action or you regret doing it. So my question is about the imprints that karma leaves on the mind stream. Um, I hear, I think I've heard that it's an abstract composite, neither form nor consciousness. Yeah, the, but yes. Do all the schools say that? And what would it mean that it's an abstract composite? Okay, what exactly that is, is it? in volume three. <laughs> okay, so you know what abstract composites are. Yeah. So when we talk about impermanent things yeah we there's three classifications forms consciousness abstract composites so a seed of a karma a karmic seed is an abstract composite so that means it's not form okay and it's not consciousness it's this grab bag called abstract that's the thing. I know it's impermanent because it's an abstract composite, yeah. and I know two things that it's not. Yes. But what it so, specifically is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's something that uh, most of the other abstract composites, maybe all of them, I don't know, but at least most of them, are in order to perceive them, you have to perceive something else. Yeah. So the, a person is an abstract composite because to perceive a person, you have to either perceive their body, speech, or mind. So it belongs in that same kind of category. And uh, karmic seeds, the seed itself is not virtuous or non-virtuous. The seed is neutral. So we often say a non-virtuous seed or a virtuous seed, that's incorrect. It's a seed of a non-virtuous karma a seed of a virtuous karma. Okay. Do, do all the schools say that it's an abstract composite? Uh, None of them say it's form or subtle form or anything? Or mental? No, I've never heard of anybody saying karmic seeds or anything else. I mean, saying is a... No. Um... Yeah. We get into this interesting thing. It's coming about how, um, yeah, about, well, we'll get into it. <laughs> and then I'll explain it. Yeah. So I'm really puzzled about imperceptible forms mm -hmm. and that 
this one sentence that you and his holiness, holiness have written, that they arise when you have a strong intention. Mm-hmm. So how does consciousness then produce This form? very subtle um, uh, a body that's made of subtle elements, that's one explanation. How it does that? I don't know. I've asked that question. How does this work? What's the process? But remember, these are extremely hidden phenomena. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Probably a similar question with the same answer, but just curious about how the process of confession and then the recitation of the precepts affects the subtle form that restores that. There's a very subtle kind of glue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, so that's how it works. (laughs) You can get it at Costco. (laughs) Yeah. I'm confused by the taste, sounds, and odors being obstructive in that we all agree that the table is obstructive. We see it obstructing many things. But if I think about, for instance, the the sound example given, Mm -hmm. so if someone's laughing and someone else is whispering, maybe one person can't hear the whisper, but the person standing next to them has better hearing and can. Yeah. So, it so seems for like it one person, okay. it, is, um, it, it is invisible and obstructive. For the other person, it's invisible and not obstructive. Because somehow you can hear the whisper through the laughter. Anything else? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a good place to stop. And uh, we'll go into the three kinds of imperceptible form next time. But it's interesting to, to think about this, you know, the intention karma and intended karma. And so, you know, as you go through the day and you do different things, then try and be aware, oh, when, when do I have an intention karma in my mind? When do I have it? Is there an intended karma? Now, when is it virtuous? When is it not virtuous? What What are the mental factors there? Okay. So if you if you um, start looking at that through your actions, then yeah, it becomes like you know. I took the book out and I closed the book. Okay. So there was a an intention in the mind. And there's the intended karma of closing the book. But this is not going to create, uh, you know, that was a, uh, a perceptible form, maybe. You know, I don't know how much you could tell my motivation. I didn't have much of a motivation. Okay. So it's not going to be something that's virtuous or non-virtuous or creating an imperceptible form afterwards. Um, but it's just closing the book. So the the three schools would say that the intended karma is my my intention when I'm closing the book. And uh, the other schools would say that it's the actual physical action of 
closing the book. And then we'll get into uh, why the press, you know, because when you think about it sometimes, why do they say it's form? Why not just say it's the intention, like the other schools? Why do the Vibhasakas and the Prasangikas, you know, say that it's a form? So we get into that. There's a reason for it. Okay. <laughs>